The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. These several Sundays approaching Christmas, I have chosen to do a simple thing. Two weeks ago, I looked at the first half of Matthew 1, last week at the second half of Matthew 1. This morning, I'm looking at the first half of Matthew chapter 2, and tonight at 10 o'clock, I'll be looking at the conclusion part of Matthew 2. So from Matthew's view, which is a complementary but somewhat unique view from that that Luke tells, Luke has more of Mary's perspective. Matthew has a Joseph perspective, and he's the one that tells us of the Magi. So I read for you this morning from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Follow along in God's Word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for It is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall also come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's own holy word. You can call me Melchior. That is the name by which I've been remembered, and I am now the last survivor of the epic journey that was made 70 years ago, back in those days when I was in my late 20s. I'm now nearly 100, crippled by arthritis and haunted by memories. In this present year of 66 A.D., I hold in my hand a copy that has come to me of the 
newly written gospel called Matthew as one disciple has told the story of Jesus, the Son of God. And I am delighted to see how he has spoken of myself and my companions from a far land. You should call me Melchior, since if I had you try to pronounce my full Persian name, your tongue would stumble over syllables that it does not recognize in your Western language. I have learned that people in your lands preserve the names of Caspar and Balthazar and Melchior, supposing that there were only three of us who came long ago, when we know actually there were many but you have correctly remembered some of our names. You also probably remember those three because your people were dazzled by expensive gifts that we brought, and you remember those well. And another of your many myths labels us as being kings. We accept the compliment, but it's wrong. We never were kings. Royalty in our land consults with us on decisions of state and knowledge of history and science, but we magi were never kings. Now, I and my brethren belong to an honorable order. We come from a people called Parthians, and in our land we are known simply by the title of magi, which is a bit like your word magic. And yet we're not sorcerers, we're not wizards, we're not conjurers, we're primarily scholars. We study ancient lore, ancient writings from faraway lands like Egypt and China and India. And we have read many scriptures from other countries, other tongues, other religions. We know the Hebrew prophets, especially Isaiah and his predictions of a great king to be born. And we knew the prophecies of Daniel, who once grew up and flourished in our own country of then called Babylon. So we are scholars and astronomers, historians, and people value the knowledge that we have gleaned from many different sources. In religion, we are distinct from you. We follow one who sometimes is called Zarathusa or Zoroaster by the Greeks. And in following that, we worship one great God. We are like you in worshiping only one God, not many. We do not believe God is divided up into a lot of other separate lesser gods. Now I say to you, it is 70 years since our great quest, and as we follow this gospel that Matthew has published, we are happy to see that there's some remembrance of us telling of us coming to Bethlehem and the stir we caused as Gentiles who seem to know much more about the king being born than even your own people did. That surprised us, of course. But we were glad to be able to inform people of it. Well, reckoning by your Roman calendar, it was about 6 B.C. when we first noticed in our astronomical studies that in the western sky there was a rare conjunction of two planets. That means they lined up together, Jupiter and Saturn, It's recorded by other scientists that this happened. And we saw this as a great symbol because Jupiter is the planet of kings. We believed that God was giving a sign of a birth of a new ruler. And we knew that the ancient scriptures of the Hebrews had said a great ruler would come out of Judea near Jerusalem. So we decided this had to be investigated firsthand. 
and we planned and executed a large caravan to leave Persia and head westward along what they call the Great Silk Road, the trade route, all the way from China to the western lands. It was quite an expedition. There were many camels. There were donkeys carrying all of our supplies and our tents, servants to pitch the tents and feed us meals, our whole group of magi and soldiers to protect us because we knew there would be bandits along the way. I was brimming with a young man's sense of excitement at all of this, and it was really amazing to be part of such an expedition with the objective of meeting a newborn king. We discussed around our campfires at night this extraordinary sign in the heavens, which at first we were able to explain by the way the planets had moved and aligned themselves, but the more we watched it, the more strange it became to us almost as if the light of this astronomical exhibition was growing brighter and almost seeming as though it was there for us personally to notice it and follow its lead. Well, you can imagine our astonishment when we finally came to Jerusalem. We thought surely we would meet people in the streets all agog and excited with discussion that their new king had been born. And as we tried to speak in their language or speak Greek to them, which we both could understand, we realized they didn't know, for the most part, what in the world we were talking about. And we found our way to the seat of government, and there we met the man they called king, one Herod, who already had styled himself before others as the great one, so-called, and he liked to be called that, a man who we learn later spawned others bearing his name, and all of them were cast from a rather wicked mold. Here was this pompous, vain man who was an Edomite by birth from the Arabian plain. His parents had been converts to Judaism. His wife was Jewish, and so he was able to obtain permission from Caesar Augustus to act as the king of the Jews, even though he himself was not Jewish-born. We soon could see that he was a very unworthy man. He was a man who was paranoid with a fear that some rival might come to stand against his rather pathetic throne. A more insecure man we've hardly ever met. And Herod spoke to us in false words about his desire to worship the child that we sought after. We knew that he was being deceitful. And we also knew that we were not going to give him any opportunity to harm the child we sought if indeed we found him. As we left Herod, we were told to go to Bethlehem, a town only six miles away. We actually wondered why none of his wise seers and advisors went with us. Why was no one among the Jewish hierarchy even curious as to whether the Christ might have been born in the near neighborhood just six miles away? but they were not. And so we went, and as we departed, wondering exactly how we were going to find the child, again, this star in the sky now seemed almost like a supernatural phenomenon to us. It was bright. It was like a beacon. And we felt as if we could follow its beacon, and it would take us surely exactly where we needed to go. And so we came to Bethlehem, and out of many primitive, small homes, we found one no different than many others, which we were guided 
to go and knock at the door. A Hebrew couple received us. I'm quite sure that for their widened eyes that they had never seen the like of our velvet robes and brocades and turbans on our heads and medallions around our neck. They were very surprised. We spoke a little with them, but we didn't think it was that necessary to give them too big an introduction because they seemed to understand what we were there for, and they beckoned us to enter. And there, of course, our eyes saw then, in the arms of the young mother, a Jewish boy child, dark hair, dark eyes, not yet two years old, not able to walk or care for himself that well. He seemed to watch us with a kind of meditative expression. We were overcome to think that this could possibly be the very babe that God had directed us to, but yet we felt certain that it was. And we murmured among ourselves when we first came in, what amazing destiny must God have for this child, that he would even rearrange the stars of his heavens to provide a symbol of his birth. We had a lot of questions, but we did not question that this was indeed the one that God destined us to find. We looked at the parents. We realized that they had nurtured this boy for about a year and a half already, this boy they had named Jesus. And yet it seemed almost as if they regarded him as being the strange guest in the room more so than ourselves. As if they, even his parents, regarded him as a visitor come from some far place, having made an epic journey to be born to this young woman without Joseph as his father. The young boy simply watched us with his calm face, a little bit of a smile, a look that was older than a child's look normally would be, a look that bespoke wisdom that was deep wisdom, more than anything we would ever be able to learn from our books and our scrolls and our ancient studies. This one was wisdom itself. And I, Melchior, tell you now seven decades later that a deep emotion stirs within me even as I recall how my learned brethren and I bowed low and prostrated ourselves upon an earthen floor of a peasant's hut and adored the child. When our caravan departed from Bethlehem, I can tell you that did not end our interest in this child, Jesus. We wanted to know what would happen, how this would all work out. So we left behind some of our younger men, more able men, and we bid them to settle down near Jerusalem and be able to provide us information by way of reports sent through commercial traders that we might track developments of this new king and how his kingdom would take hold. Well, their first reports as we returned were such that said something that didn't surprise us too much, that Herod had actually tried to kill the young Lord and had done a devastating murder against babies in the town of Bethlehem. But we heard that the Lord escaped. And then there were years of much silence as our friends told us that he apparently had gone to Egypt for a time and then came back to another obscure town, Nazareth. Still he wasn't in the center of the action in Jerusalem. And then just quiet 
for several decades. We learned that among the Jews, one is not counted as a full-grown man until he's about 30. So sure enough, as Jesus approached that age, we began to get reports, frequent ones, telling us of him arising as a rabbi with a popular following as he taught the scriptures of the Old Testament and even put himself in the place of being the recipient of the messianic expectation of the Jews, saying that he was the one sent from God as Messiah. And we heard that there were those who believed and followed him. And we also heard of him doing miracles over nature, calming storms, and providing many wonderful healings to people. It's not necessary that I recount all of this, because many of you know of his public ministry better than I. But like the people who noticed that wonderful short life, we in Persia heard with dismay and even shock when word came that Jesus had been executed on a cruel Roman cross by the very people whom he came to reach with God's wonderful message. However, right on the tail of that came the other report of his resurrection. And this did not astonish us so much because we already knew that God was doing wonderful things in this life and through this life. And so we found it very credible to hear of how many witnesses could say, just as God had worked a miracle to have him be virgin-born, God worked a miracle to bring him back alive, and many witnesses could testify. And therefore, even though we were far away, we could believe as magi and join the ranks of many thousands who believe that Jesus truly is the King of the ages and that he reigns from a throne at the right hand of God now as the greatest of God's priests intervening for human sin by his death and his resurrection. He is greater than his ancestor, King David. We believe today He is enthroned and he rules in the heavens itself. Well, before I conclude, I should speak something of the gifts that we brought because that seems to be the thing everyone remembers about us. We were not rich men. As I said, we were not kings. Our expedition was funded by the royal house of Persia. The many camels and all the equipment and supplies did not come from our personal purse. Our government treasury paid for the gifts that we carried. And the disciple Matthew has told you correctly everything in his recent gospel, that we brought gold because it is the metal of kings, and we surely believed him to be a king. We brought frank incense because we saw that he was come as the outpouring of God, and incense is used on the altar of God when sacrifices are made to send a sweet-smelling smoke arising to heaven. But we know that many saw our third gift as a strange one when we brought myrrh from the town of Smyrna, where myrrh is made and sold throughout the whole area of the Mediterranean. And you probably know that it is a painkiller and an embalming substance for the dead bodies. This was strange in many eyes, but we believe God led us to this gift because we could guess that this young Messiah was going to face many sufferings, and we wanted to give an act of something for the pain 
that he would surely face. I, Melchior, am the last living rabbi of the Magi, and I assert that you need not duplicate the expensive gifts that we gave to the Christ child. You surely cannot afford that. But there is a way in which you must imitate what we did. You must seek after this Christ with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and press on as if on a great journey past all obstacles of your skeptical and materialistic age that tells you he cannot be known or tells you that that he's just a fable. Don't believe it. I testify otherwise. Whatever your proud standing is in life and whatever learning you think you have achieved to give you knowledge ahead of other men, you, like us, must prostrate yourself before Him in adoration and praise. And I ask you today, do you know Him as God's great living King and Lord? Do you know Him as a Savior from heaven offered to mankind? Do you know that he died his agonizing death in payment for the wrongs that God could have charged against every one of us? I bid you this, folks. Bring to this Christ your emptiness, your broken dreams, your shattered hopes, your disappointments in your family or in your accomplishments. Bring to him the offering of your life. Yield it up that he might control you and guide you and protect you until you reach your heavenly home. I, called Melchior of Persia, can tell you this. I was a magi before I went to Jerusalem, but I only became a wise man the day that I met the infant Jesus face to face because in him I saw the wisdom of God and the power of God, and the visible image of the invisible God himself. And so I say to you, God has prepared a gift for you, and that's the most important thing, not what you bring to him, what he wants to be to you. For the scriptures say, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no higher wisdom Not in the stars, not in the earth, not in ancient lore, no higher wisdom that I can disclose to you than what I have spoken in your hearing this day. And our Father, I pray that you would make us wise men, wise women, wise boys and girls, wise students, wise teenagers, as we would peer deep into the great wisdom that you worked on our behalf in bringing before us the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. May we join the Magi on our faces before him. To his honor and praise we ask. Amen.